Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome again to Resurrection City Church. Uh, like Lisa said, special welcome if you're new or visiting with us. We're always really glad to have you here. Um, we love getting together on Sundays to worship, and we love having new people with us as well. So thanks for coming. Um, my name is Julie. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City Church. Uh, and something to know about me is that I have never been very good at history. I like remembering dates and when they happen is really hard for my brain. I can remember the story, right? Like I remember the event and what happened in the event, but to ask me to place it on a timeline, like I remember those tests from history class where it was like, here's a timeline, place the events in order. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I could tell you all about what that event was, but I could not tell you when it was. But I did have this one really great history teacher in uh, 10th grade. His name was Mr. Schumacher. He taught world history. And he did this thing that was kind of well known around the 10th graders that he called World War II in eight minutes. And he would literally explain all of World War II, like all of the events that led up to it and caused the war, what happened in the war, and then all of the events kind of after, like what was the fallout, how did it all get resolved, in eight minutes. And it wasn't like he just had, you know, like a whiteboard and was just up there droning on for eight minutes. He would run around the classroom, he would jump up on desks and like wave his arms around and be yelling and then be really quiet and it was very interactive and highly entertaining, especially when you're a 10th grader and most of your teachers you think are really boring or dull. <laughs> so when you have a teacher who's willing to like run around and be crazy, it's, it's an exciting day in 10th grade. And uh, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, uh, in the book of Daniel, which is what we've been studying, uh, there, Daniel has been having these visions. And these visions actually end up kind of representing uh, things that are going to happen in history. So Joel talked last, the last couple weeks about like the four beasts in these visions and how they probably represented these empires or kingdoms that came into power in different times after Daniel's life. And today we are going to go on another pretty trippy vision with Daniel. Uh, he's got another one. And it's going to sort of outline some historical events that are coming after Daniel. So here's my plan. I am going to try to do it. I'm going to try and explain the vision. We're going to walk through the, the scripture of the vision. And then explain to you what historical events it lines up with in five minutes. Okay, I'm not going to jump on things because I think Zach would be pretty upset with me if I jumped on sound equipment, although he's not here today, so it uh, could be our little secret. But uh, I'm not going to jump on things, but I'm going I'm to channel my inner Lorelai Gilmore for those Gilmore Girl fans and talk really fast. I'm going to attempt to, and I'm going to attempt to get through it all in five minutes. So if you want to time me, you can. Uh, I don't know. We'll see if I can, if I can make it, but... Uh, that's the plan. So you're going to hear the vision of Daniel from chapter 8, and then you're also going to hear some second and third century history that it kind of matches up with what the vision is. Okay. Ready? Who's got the timer? Someone's got it? Okay. All right. I'm nervous. Okay. Ready? Set? Go. Okay, so like I said, we're going to go through the vision first. So starting in Daniel 8, chapter, Daniel 8, verse 1. In the third year of King Belteshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. 
I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and north and south, and no animal could stand against it, and no one could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew to the power uh, to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the whole host of heaven, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Okay, so here's the history, right? starts off with this ram, and it's got two large horns. And these horns represent Media and Persia, which were two nations in that that time, right? But one of the horns becomes bigger than the other one, and it swallows up the other one, right? And that one's Persia, because Persia ends up becoming way bigger and basically taking over media. But then a goat with a big horn between its two eyes shows up, and this goat charges all around, right? It's going from every single direction. It's taking everything out. It is literally the goat. It is the greatest of all time. It's the Simone Biles, the LeBron James, the Tom Brady. I had to ask Joel who these people were. I didn't know who the greatest football player was. Uh, I did know Simone Biles though, right? Okay, so why is he so great? Who is this? This is Alexander the Great. It's literally in his name. If you remember him from history class, he led an unprecedented military campaign through Asia and Northeast Africa. He created the largest empire of the ancient world, right? It stretched from Greece all the way to India, and he did this all by the age of 30, right? Definitely on the 30 under 30 list. In his lifetime, he held the titles of King of Macedon, Pharaoh of Egypt, King of Persia, and Lord of Asia, which I'm pretty sure he made that up because no one held that title before him. But when you're that great, you can do what you want. But then, at the age of 33, he dies suddenly. So everyone's scrambling to figure it out, right? There's this massive empire, and he, everyone's trying to take over parts of it. Who's gonna rule it? Who can, who can be as great as Alexander the Great? And eventually, it's chaos for a while, and then four powers rise up. These are called the diadochi, or the successors. And one of, out of one of those horns, um, one that's called the Seleucid Empire, so you can see the four empires, the brown one is the Seleucid Empire. Out of that one, there's a horn, it talks about a horn that comes out of one of the four horns, right? It's not really supposed to be there, but it grows out anyways. That is Antiochus Epiphanes. It starts out small, but it grows in power. So this guy, Antiochus, he was like a sneaky mustache twirling type of guy. Uh, in fact, in, later in the chapter, they're gonna call him the master of intrigue. So he used political manipulation to push his nephew out of the way so that he could take over the throne. And in that, he was a horrible ruler. He got nicknames like the stern-faced king, and people called him completely wicked. He was horrible. In particular, he was horrible to the Jewish people. He stopped the temple sacrifices, which was their way of connecting with God, and then he did something that was incredibly horrible that the Jewish people could not even understand. He put a statue of, uh, let me check, Zeus, a false god, inside the temple, and then he did something called the abomination of desolation. He sacrificed a pig, which, right, Jewish people cannot eat pork, they don't go near pork, in the temple, 
This was like the craziest thing for the Jewish people. They thought, what in the world's going to happen? Our whole religion is basically done if this is how the temple is going to be. So it causes this huge revolt in Jerusalem. And all these people are trying to get him out of, the, of, out of his throne. And it's called the Maccabean Revolt. So if you've ever heard that in history, that's what this is called. And the vision says that Antiochus will be destroyed, but not by human hands. Later he dies of a mysterious illness. Okay, that's it. How did I do on time? Yes! did it. Okay. Whew. Okay, I need a drink of water. Hold on. <laughs> okay. All right. So if you were able to follow all of that, uh, it's basically a giant power struggle. So all these different empires are trying to take over, and it ends up with a leader that, like, for them is the worst of the worst. They can't even imagine having someone who would set up a statue of Zeus in the temple of God, which is their place to worship the Lord. And it's a really sacred place for them. And then not only that, but he sacrifices a pig there, which again is like kind of just rubbing it in their face. It really makes them feel like this has completely destroyed our way of connecting with God. And so in the vision, you see someone cries out, how long, sort of as this lament, kind of like in the Psalms when you hear people say, how long, O Lord, how long is this suffering going to continue? Um, and they respond, 2,300 evenings and mornings, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but first, before we get to that, I'm going to summarize kind of the rest of chapter 8, which gives us the interpretation of Daniel's vision. I'm not going to read this one as fast as I did the other one. Uh, so basically, Daniel is watching this vision. He's like, what the heck? This is very confusing. Uh, and then he hears a voice that calls out and says, hey, why don't you go tell him what that meant? So uh, someone comes and tells him, it says that it's uh, in the time of wrath because this vision concerns the appointed time of the end. And then he goes on to kind of explain what I did, right, about the media in Persia, and then the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, uh, and then the four horns that replace him are broken off, represent four kingdoms that will emerge. So those were those, the successors, those four empires that came up after that. And then it says that in the later part of the reign, uh, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, right, the mustache twirling, uh, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and will take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed not by human power. All right, here we go. Uh, the vision of evenings and mornings that was given to you is true, but seal up the vision for it contains the distant future. So I'll just give you a quick uh, aside here. A lot of people do think that that last, uh, the master of intrigue, is Antiochus Epiphanes, but you'll notice that in the other, the other animals and the other horns are given specific things like Media and Persia and Greece. This one doesn't have a specific name that it's given. And so it's a little bit more unclear as to who it points to in the future. There are some people who actually think that that part of the vision jumps all the way in time to 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. So that's after Jesus. Uh, but I, you know, I'll lay my cards on the table. I hold kind of a like, it can be a multiple fulfillment type of a, they call it the multiple fulfillment interpretation. So the idea that it could be Antiochus Epiphanes and that it could uh, then refer to future events as well. But I think part of that is because I think that the main point that they're trying to make here is not to say this is a specific event and you need to figure it out, right? Like this is not a movie where 
Daniel is given a vision, and he has all these clues, and he's like, okay, now I've got to figure out which events are going to happen when and stop them before it happens, right? Like some kind of crazy movie where he's a spy and he somehow gets these secrets. Although that does sound like a movie I would like, it is not actually what's happening here. So we see at the end of it, Daniel says, uh, I was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And Daniel has never been more relatable than here, right? He's like, this is confusing and hard. I'm going to go take a nap. Uh, and then I'm going to wake up and I'm going to keep going on like nothing happened. Who can relate to that, right? <laughs> uh, and so again, with all of this, we could spend a lot of time talking about like which event matches up with which event and you know, what's that, that 2,300 mornings and evenings? What does that mean? Is that 2,300 days? Is that 203,000, whoops, reverse that, 2,300 uh, sacrifices, which is another way that they like thought about time. Uh, and people have spent a lot of time on this, right? You can read a lot about it. It's something that we can get really focused on if we are reading the text, looking just for those things. But I think if you like take a step back, right, this is, think about it from Daniel's perspective. He's given this vision. Why is he given this vision? What does it mean for him? What is he supposed to do with it? And I think as we think about it more, the bigger picture that we see is not, you know, be prepared for this king and this king and this king. It's that no matter how everything goes, no matter how many horrible leaders we have in place, no matter how many leaders are against worship of God and are in some way trying to impinge the Jews' ability to worship Yahweh, the truth is, is that God is still in control. And so no matter how bad it gets, God is still in control and he will triumph, right? This vision is actually more supposed to be a vision of encouragement for Daniel. Even though it's all of these difficult events and difficult things that he sees that appall him, he says he's horrified and appalled by this, it's actually supposed to be a vision of encouragement that this suffering, these bad leaders, this difficult, evil stuff that you see in the world, it has an end date. Right? Nothing in this surprises God. He's not scared of these leaders. He's not threatened by it. He knows that he is going to triumph in the end. So that's kind of what we've been talking about in a lot of Daniel, right? If you think back to some of the messages we've talked about so far in chapters 1 through 7, a lot of times the message is God is still in control and he is going to triumph over evil. And so I know we've been banging that drum a lot through this series, and it's something we want you to continue to think about. But today I want to focus more specifically on, okay, what do we do in the meantime, right? So if we know that God's in control, and we know that eventually all of this evil has an end date, whether we're looking at the evil that we see in the world, like while we're watching the news, we're like, wow, this is really hard and really horrible. When is this going to end? When is, our, when is there going to be justice for people who have injustice? Or whether you're looking at things more immediate to you, whether it's evil that was done to you, and you're thinking, is, this, is there any justice for the evil that's been done to me in the world or the evil that's been done to the people I care about? Or whether you're looking inside yourself and seeing evil and seeing sin and things that you don't like and thinking, am I ever going to get through this, right? Is this ever going to be something that I don't struggle with? Is God going to triumph over the evil that's inside of me? And Joel talked about that a little bit more last week, about the different types of despair that we feel over the sin that's in our own life. But with all of that, right, I think our instinct is like Daniel, I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> and then maybe I'll get up and keep doing my normal life and not think about it. 
but I think there's more uh, here that we should be thinking about, right? How can we wait well? How can we, as we know that there's an end date to the suffering, that God's going to triumph, what do we do in the meantime? What does that mean for us today as Christians? So there are three things I want to talk about as we go through it. Um, and so we'll kind of walk through it. But I just want you to think about, yeah, what are, what are some of the things that you are, feel like you see in the world or in yourself that you're like, gosh, I just, I'm really looking forward to the time when God's going to come back and, and triumph over this and, and try to apply these different things to your life. So first of all, we need to trust God's timing. And I know that this is easier said than done, and it may even sound like kind of a vague notion or a platitude that someone might give you if you're feeling stuck or you're feeling like angsty over the evil in the world, like, oh, you just need to trust God's timing. It's all going to be fine. But I think there's a lot more depth to that than just some kind of platitude. So think about it from Daniel's perspective. He's getting all of this, all of these visions, all of these promises of, you know, the Son of Man coming in on the clouds, like Joel talked about last week, and God triumphing. But he just kind of has to say, okay, God, I trust you, and I'm going to, like, wait to see that happen, even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime. But we, we live on the other side of the cross, right? So we actually get to see Jesus triumph over evil on the cross, So Colossians 2, verses 13 and 15 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Right? So this reminds us that in the most unexpected way, Jesus triumphs over evil. And we know that. We've seen God be faithful. Right, Like I said, Daniel didn't have that when he was getting these visions. He was there hoping and believing that God would do something. But we can actually look back and see that he did do something. And he did something that was crazy. He, sent, he came himself to take care of the evil, to take care of the evil in the world, to take care of the evil that's been done to us or that we've done to other people, and to take care of the evil that's inside of our own hearts. He nails it all to the cross, and having disarmed those powers of evil, he triumphs over them. So we need to look back as we think about looking forward, right? As we think about the future and think about when is God going to do something about it? When is this uh, all going to be made new, like it talks about in Revelation, which is another apocalyptic book with lots of fun visions? Uh, But one of the visions is really encouraging to look at, right? It talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, It talks about God dwelling with his people and there being no more pain or mourning or crying or tears. It's this beautiful picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and truly takes care of all of the evil in the world and everything is made new. So we can look forward to that and say, I want that. I'm waiting for that time. But as we're waiting, I think it's also helpful to look back and see what God has already done for us. We can put our trust in God's promises because we've seen him be faithful. We know that he is going to do something about that evil. And recently I was listening to a sermon from a, um, a church plant in North Carolina, and they were talking about how she was comparing trust to a muscle, right? Like if you have muscles, if you don't use them, right, like if you break a bone and you have to have 
you know, your arm in a cast or something like that, when they take the cast off, you can see the muscles are like completely shrunk because you haven't used them. So they've atrophied is the fancy word. Uh, and so she was talking about how trust is similar to that. If we are not constantly actively trusting God and thinking about it, then our trust muscle is going to atrophy, right? So you might have even noticed this or think about it. There may have been times in your life where things were difficult or you were really struggling to trust God. And so daily you were like praying, you were coming to God and saying, God, I want to trust you. You were in the scriptures, you were spending more time worshiping and you probably, it got easier, right? To, to trust him. Throughout that time, by the end of it, you might have been able to say, this is really hard and this sucks, but I trust that God is going to do something about it because you've spent that time practicing it. You've spent that time reading scripture and being reminded of those truths. And then, you know, maybe after that, you've got a, rel- a time of relatively normal life. Things are going pretty well. Maybe you're not thinking about God as much as you were because you haven't needed him, right? That's kind of human. We tend to go to God when we need him, and then when we don't, we kind of tend to, you know, maybe like, oh, I'll read my Bible later. Or, you know, it's not a huge deal if I'm not thinking about it. But when that happens, then when trouble or hardship comes again, it's like you're starting all over, right? You don't have that built-up muscle to be able to say, okay, God, I trust you. I know the promises that you've given us. I can look back at the cross, and I can, I can trust you to be faithful to the promises that you've given us. And so the first thing I just want us to think about is, yeah, how can we make a practice of flexing that trust muscle? How can we practice daily looking to God and looking back to the cross and saying, I've seen you be faithful before, and so I know you're going to continue to be faithful. So as we wait, we need to flex our trust muscle. Secondly, we need to live as new people now. So it's really easy, and we've seen this happen uh, with lots of people, to become obsessed with figuring out the future. Whether that's deciphering these visions and like really digging into, okay, 2,300 mornings and evenings, what does that mean? Does that line up with this historical event or this historical event? Um, People read Revelation all the time and try to do this, right? They say, okay, I got to figure out exactly, does this historical person line up with this person in scripture? And what does this symbol mean? You know, we can become obsessed with figuring it out. And it's not surprising, right? Uh, we live in a world where we have knowledge at our fingertips constantly. If I have a question or if I can't remember something, I can just pull out my phone and look it up, right? No, no problem. Just pull it out and Google it. You've got the answer right there. And that's, in a way, it's nice, right? There are some advantages to having knowledge. There are great things that knowledge can do. But at the same time, it can give us this sense, this false sense of control, Right? We have this idea of, like, I know everything. I can, I can figure it out. I can just look it up. I can ask someone. Mostly Google is probably the way most of us go about it. And so we think that we, we just have this knowledge, and therefore we should know it. And it becomes this uh, sense of control, right? We want to control things. And also, almost in a weird way, a sense of pride, right? We feel like I should know all the things because I can know all the things. And therefore, we're afraid to make mistakes, right? Because we feel like, well, I should have known that. Or I should have been able to look it up. I might sound dumb if I say the wrong thing when really I have all this knowledge at my fingertips. I think that this is why we were playing, some of us were playing trivia this week, and I was like, I think this is why we love bar trivia so much, right? Is because for two hours, you have to put your phone away. 
and you have to do, use the knowledge that you have and make educated guesses about these random questions. And it's so funny because even in between rounds, we were like pulling out our phone like, oh, did we get that question right? I gotta look it up, right? We can't even wait two hours. We have to look it up within one hour because we just feel this constant desire and like need to know what's gonna happen. And we do this in our own lives too, right? We need to know what's gonna happen. We wanna plan it out. We wanna be prepared for all of these things. But the truth is, is that God doesn't give these visions in scripture so that we can obsess over them and try to figure out exactly when Jesus is coming back. Uh, if anything, there's a part in Mark where Jesus says, only the Father knows, right? This is not something that we are meant to know is when Jesus is coming back. But these visions and these parts of scripture are meant to be encouragements to us as we wait. And to live fully uh, made new in Christ now as if it's a it is a reality for us now, knowing that it's going to be a reality for the whole world to be made new in the future. So 1 Thessalonians 5 uh, says that there's going to be a day, uh, the day that when Jesus comes back will come like a thief in the night. And he says this not to scare people, right? Like he's not trying to like fear tactic you into living a certain way. But he does it because there's a reality that's coming and he's encouraging us to live like that's true now. So it says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breast breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So it's encouraging us to focus on how we're living now, to live as children of the light, to live as if we're made new in Christ uh, now, and not wait, right? It can be easy to procrastinate or to put things off. I'll, I'll, you know, grow in my character later. I'll grow in my understanding of the Bible or of Jesus, all of that stuff later. I've got a lot of stuff going on right now, right? Like, I'm in a really busy season. <laughs> this is my favorite, right? We, if, if you're not uh, familiar with church culture, if someone just brought you along as a friend today, you may have even heard your friend say this, but Christians love to use the word season, right? And I'm guilty of it too. I use it. And I'm not saying it's a bad word, right? It helps describe a situation that we're in, right? I'm in a busy season at work or you know, this season with kids is just the certain way, or however it is, right? We love to talk about seasons. And again, I'm not saying it's bad, but I do see a tendency to use it somewhat as an excuse. And I'm not saying everybody does this when they use the word season, but I have seen it kind of creep into some of the way we talk about it, right? Well, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna work on, you know, learning more about who God is through reading my Bible later because I'm just in this really busy season. I can't join a community group right now because things are just too crazy right now in this season, right? Whatever it is. We like to say that certain things, and that might be true, right? You might be in a really busy season and you might not be able to do things the way you thought you would, right? Sabbath is another thing, right? Taking time to rest. We love to say, I'm just in this season now where I can't really rest, but in the future I will. Don't worry, I'm gonna do it in the future. <laughs> and I am guilty of this. Oh man, this was convicting to me this week. Right? But the truth is, yes, you may not be able to Sabbath or read scripture or be in community in the way that you are used to because of the season of life you're in, but that doesn't mean you can just like jettison the whole thing and say, eh, I'll just get to it later. So you need to find other ways to live in that light, to live as new people now. 
So what does that look like? I don't know. Maybe if you don't have time to spend an hour studying scripture every day like you used to, if you used to do that, props to you. That's awesome. Um, But maybe that means you listen to it uh, on audio, on your commute, right? Most Bible apps have an audio version. It's really easy if you download version or the ESV Bible app, you can easily listen to it um, through audio. Or maybe if you're, you know, if you used to take the whole weekend as your Sabbath and you, you know, you had all these things you used to do, you used to go walk around a park and you used to, you know, spend three hours at a coffee shop and everything else, but right now in the season that you're in, you can't do that. That's okay, but how are you going to Sabbath? Because it's still important to live as you're new, made new right now. So maybe that means, yeah, you're going to wake up an hour earlier before your kids are up so that you can have some time uh, to rest or some time with God. You gotta, we have to figure out how we can still live in that new creation way now, even in these different seasons of our lives. Uh, and I, you know, it's, it is tough. I get it, right? Like, we, ha- we go through seasons of life where it is really hard to, um, to take the time to do those things. But whenever we say, like, I'm in this season now, we kind of presuppose that the next season is going to be better or different. But again, this is that control thing. We don't actually know what the next season of life is going to be. It could be even harder than the previous one. Um, You know, and honestly, I'm not trying to say this to be morbid, but like we don't even always know that we're going to get another season, right? I have a close friend whose sister is really sick right now, and she doesn't know how much longer she has, and she's in her early 30s, right? I think we sometimes like to think like, I'm going to live till I'm 100. I've got all this time. I'll do it later. But the truth is we don't know, right? It talks about a thief coming in the night. And again, not to scare you, not to like be a fear tactic, but to say it's important to live like this now. It matters today. God cares now about what you're doing and how you're living your life. Um, and especially if you're not currently a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're like just thinking about checking out Jesus but you're not really sure, or you're like, yeah, it seems cool, but you know, I'm pretty busy right now, maybe later, or I kind of like my life as it is now, and that seems kind of like hard, or it might cause me to change some things, so maybe I'll just wait until later to do that. Again, I'd encourage you to think about it now, right? We don't always know what the next year, the next month is going to hold, and Jesus's promise for new life is available to you now, so I'd really encourage you, if you're in that place, to, to think about it, and to really consider what it would look like to to believe that Jesus is faithful to the promises that he's made. Okay, and then lastly, the third thing I want to talk about is to invite others in. So this is a truly incredible revelation that we have, that Jesus wins, right? (laughs) That we don't have to be afraid of any of the evil that's out there, and that the world will eventually be made new. That God is in control, and he will triumph over evil. So not only should we desire to share that with others while we're here, but God also desires that we share it with others. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 13 says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So we see that God's not just like being slow, right? So if you're looking around the world and being like, okay, God, this seems like a good time to come and take care of all the evil. Or if you're really struggling with something personally and you're like, all right, God, when are you going to fix this? Or when are you going to do something about it? We tend to focus in on ourselves and be like, God, this is the timing that I need, that I want. But the truth is that 
that God might have other purposes going on in the world, right? He might not be being slow, but he might be being patient, as this text says, because he wants as many people as possible to believe in him and to come to him. So I know that we can tend to view God a little bit like a toddler trying to like get on all their outside gear before going outside. If you've ever tried to take a toddler outside in the winter, it is incredibly difficult. It takes a long time. Uh, We can tend to view God like that, like seriously? (laughs) Come on, how long is this gonna take? Why, why is this, why do you have to put the mitten on three different times before we can do something about it? Uh, But the truth is, is that, again, if we take our eyes off of ourselves and we look at the bigger picture of what God is doing in his world, we can see that maybe there's a reason behind it that doesn't have to do with you, but it's so that other people can see him and learn more of who he is. Because pain and suffering and evil that we experience can make us really self-focused. I know that when you're going through a hard time, if you're really struggling with something and you're waiting for God to do something about it, it can be really hard to take your eyes off of that, and to look around at the other people around you. But maybe this is a good time to look around at other people, to see, are there other people in your life who are also having a difficult time? Is there someone in your life who doesn't have the hope of God? They don't know that God is going to make everything new, and they're going through a really hard time. As someone who struggles with chronic pain, I often think to myself, I don't know how people who don't have the hope of like a new life, new world, everything being made new. I don't know how people with chronic pain who don't have that deal with it. Because it is like a real struggle every day to feel like I, this is a broken body. We live in a broken world. And so to maybe take your eyes off of yourself and what you're experiencing and look around. Is there someone around you who is also struggling but doesn't have that hope? So can you share that with them? Can you invite them in? And maybe if they're not in a place where they're ready to hear that, maybe just start even with praying for them, right? Praying for other people is a great way to help us take our eyes off of ourselves and to really see the bigger picture of what God is doing um, and who maybe in your life he's encouraging you to reach out to. So those are kind of the application points that I want us to talk through, or I wanted to talk through today. So I'll just recap those um, before we move into a time of response. But again, flex that trust muscle. It's so easy, especially if you're here now and you're like, yeah, I'm not really in a hard time right now. I don't really, it doesn't bother me to look around and see the evil in the world. I'm just kind of used to it. It just doesn't, you know, like there's not anything really bugging me right now in my life. That's awesome if you're there, but I can guarantee you that you won't be there forever (laughs) because we do live in a broken world. And so find ways now, even if you're not in suffering, to flex that trust muscle and to say, okay, how can I daily remind myself that God is faithful to his promises, that he is coming to make everything new, that he was willing to go and die on the cross for us, even though we don't deserve it, even though we are broken, right? He was willing to do that for us. So flex that trust muscle this week. Figure out what that looks like for you. And then focus on how you're living now, right? Don't put it off. Uh, look to see, yeah, how is God using different things to grow you right now? If you are in a time of suffering, lean into that suffering. Lean into what God is doing in your life. Reach out to him. Cry out to him instead of just trying to muscle through it and ignore it until you get through that time. Um, And then lastly, pray for and share with those who don't have the hope in Christ. Who are those people in your life who you can pray for or that you could reach out to um, and share the hope that you have the hope that Christ was willing to die for us and be raised again, and that we have hope that a new world is coming.
Okay, we are going to move to a time of response as we do every week through worship and communion. Uh, and as I've been saying, this is a great chance to practice flexing that trust muscle, right? Communion is here to remind us of what God has done already for us. So take some time as you are um, coming up for communion to just remember that and to think about the fact that through nothing you've done on your own, God was willing to come and save you and to make everything new again. And we practice open communion, so you don't have to be a member here. We don't actually technically have members yet because we're a new church. Uh, but we just ask that you're a follower of Christ. So someone who believes that Jesus is who he says he was and that uh, believe in his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, and then while we're doing that, we will have someone in the back to offer prayers. So if there's anything in your life that you just want to um, have someone pray over, you can. Rachel will be in the back. You can talk with her. And then the last thing is that we also view giving as a response to what God has done. So if you'd like to give, there's a box in the back, or you can do it online. There's a little um, QR code on our welcome card. All right, so we're going to continue to worship through song and communion, and uh, I'm going to start that off by praying. So please pray with me. Lord, we praise you that you are trustworthy, that we can look to the cross and see that even though we didn't deserve it, you were willing to keep your promises even though we broke our promises, you were willing to keep yours. Uh, and that through that, you have given us new life in Christ. And that we can trust that one day you will be coming back to make the whole world new. To triumph over the evil that's in the world. Uh, and to make a way forward for us to dwell with you as your people. Um, and have a world with no more mourning and no more crying. No more tears, no more pain. So Lord, I pray that you would help us as we wait. That you would help us to wait well and to... Uh, not put it off or to not just think, well, I'll get to that tomorrow or maybe another time, but to really know that you've given us new life now and that that's a gift and that we would steward it well as we wait for the whole world to be made new. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>